I'm Cullen Burke, and this is Cauldron, a history of the world, battle by battle. Thanks for listening. I'm your host, Cullen, and this week we have another great story for you. But first, the housekeeping. Don't forget to follow us on Instagram for some great images and factoids. Just search Cauldron. Also, we're on Facebook at the same. Go to the website for maps and the Your Theories page where you can send in what you think about the battle. Finally, go to our Patreon page, search Cauldron, and donate to get special access and some cool show gear like t-shirts and mugs. All your donations go directly to research materials and future episodes, so thank you very much for that. All right, before we get stuck in at Masada, the sources for this episode are Fighting Techniques of the Ancient World, published by Amber. This book is an awesome spot to go for in-depth diagrams, and accounts of the weapons used at different points in history. The next source we used was The War Chronicles by Joseph Cummins. It's an excellent new pickup that has some wonderful timelines and some really good, uh, well-researched, one-off articles. And uh, the final source we used is called Battles of the Ancient World, and it was a big help in getting some maps and just kind of getting the... the um, scale of the city and the siege equipment used in this battle. So, anyhow, that's enough of that. Let's get stuck in. Impossible. That was the word on everyone's mind. It was just... Not possible. The Romans could build their camps and march all around, probing the base of the mountain, but it was simply impossible to take the city itself. High above the surrounding wasteland of desert, Masada was built atop a plateau some 1,300 feet above sea level, and with almost sheer cliffs all the way around, the enemy would need to grow wings just to reach the walls. If determined, an attacker could attempt to take the snake path, but this winding and narrow way would be a death trap, as in some places it became so narrow it could only really accommodate one person, treading carefully at a time. If, in the inconceivable chance, the assailants did reach the city walls, there was no room for maneuver or any flat area for them to build siege equipment which all meant that the only way to take Masada was to surround it and commit to a long blockade. And a long blockade it would be, as Masada had huge storerooms that were stocked very well, and the ingenious system of cisterns caught huge amounts of rainwater that could be reliably stored for an indefinite amount of time. Even though the city had only a small fighting force of around a hundred warriors, with a total of about a thousand souls within the walls, there was a large cachet of weapons, meaning that if it came to a fight, every man, woman, and child would be armed to the teeth. 
Added to all of this was the difficulty of simply keeping an army in the area surrounding Masada supplied. And it's no wonder that people inside the fort believed defeat was impossible. The Romans had been a major player in the Levant for a long time, but had only ruled directly in Judea for about a hundred years at the time of the Siege of Masada. Originally annexed by Pompey Magnus and joined with the province of Syria, Judea was given enough freedom to appoint its own king and rulers. This, however, did not mean Judea controlled its own fate. Its position in between the Roman Empire and the Parthian Empire assured that it was vitally important as a buffer state for the Romans. If Judea were lost, the grain-rich Egyptian province and the economic powerhouses of Syria and modern Asia Minor would be in danger, the loss of either of which was unacceptable to the emperors back in Rome. Judea, however, was no easy place to rule, and almost immediately after Rome took control of the region, the ultra-Orthodox faction of Judaism known as the Zealots began demanding Roman removal. To help rein in Judea, procurators were appointed. These men were essentially all-powerful within their appointed territories and reported back directly to the emperor himself. Corruption and mismanagement was rife among the procurators, and often their decisions created huge issues for the Jews that they governed. Let's not forget Pontius Pilate was a procurator. Being robbed and treated like dirt by the highest Roman officials in the land did not endear the empire to many of the Jews in Judea, and in 66 AD, procured a Gessius Florus stole from the Holy Temple in Jerusalem, setting off massive riots. The inept governor's response massacred 3,000 Jews in the streets, which caused a rift among the revolters. The Sadducees wanted to avoid bloodshed and cooperate with the Romans, but the Zealots, a Greek word for, uh, that meant one who is zealous on the behalf of God, the Zealots were having none of it and wanted to fight. The most ride or die of this group were known as the Sicarii, or dagger men. And these guys believed so strongly in fighting Rome that they began killing Jews that disagreed with them right out in the open, in the streets. It's the Sicarii, you'll remember, that we left in Masada. As the Sicarii created widespread panic and chaos in Jerusalem, the Roman response was abysmal. A failed attack on the temple itself led to the Battle of Beth Huron, where 6,000 Roman casualties amounted to Rome's worst field battle in some 50 years. Believing in their apparent invincibility and in God's assistance in their cause, the Zealots moved throughout the Roman territory, capturing outposts and small forts, and in most cases, slaughtering the Roman garrisons. At this point, Emperor Nero had had enough and sent the tough, methodical general Titus Flavius Vespasian to deal with the problem on the eastern shore of the Mediterranean. Moving slowly but steadily, Vespasian won back much of the Roman territory, 
winning battles at Jodapada, Tiberias, and Gamala. Before he could attack Jerusalem, however, Vespasian learned of Nero's suicide in a weird time of multiple emperors and coups led eventually to Vespasian's appointment to emperor and his leaving for Rome. Vespasian still wanted Jerusalem, though, so he left its siege in the more than capable hands of his son, Titus. After almost 150 days of brutal siege, Jerusalem fell, and soon after, the Holy Temple fell as well, a section of which, uh, whose wall is still standing today, now known as the Wailing Wall. With the revolt's base of operation under Roman control and most of the support for the zealots crushed, there remained one last stronghold, high above the ground and filled with the fierce Sicarii and their families. This was the Fortress of Masada. As Roman general Flavius Silva rode around the base of the mountain on which sat his objective, his first thought was probably something along the lines of what the Irumabo sent to this arid, nasty part of the country in AD 72 and ordered to take his 5,000-plus force of legionaries with a huge contingent of slaves and capture this seemingly impregnable fort, Silva's job was not an easy one. The plateau itself was high, and ringing the entire top were walls that grew out of the jagged, sheer cliffs. Only two gates led into or out of the city, and all the paths up to the city were completely devoid of cover, meaning a long, treacherous climb under enemy fire the whole way. Silva wouldn't have liked that idea one bit. Too many dead Romans in this hellhole, he'd have thought. He eventually decided to set up a blockade to hopefully starve the Jews out. Silva had his men set up eight camps around the base of the mountain, connecting each camp with walls and towers every 250 to 300 feet. Now, this is the first of a series of crazy feats of Roman engineering and logistics at Masada. Because when the series of walls and forts were finally complete, it created a, a defensive ring over two miles long. And this is in a desolate, arid landscape utterly devoid of trees. But, surrounded and cut off from resupply, the Jews in Masada were undaunted and unwilling to surrender. So, Silva would have to find another way. Impossible. The Romans moved like ants at the base of the mountain and were doing something to the white cliff, but it was still impossible to take the city. Impossible. No matter what the Romans were doing, they would still have no way to breach the walls. Impossible. Silva, however, had found what he believed was a weak spot in the Jewish defenses, and so had, he hoped, found his alternate path to taking the city. 
a jagged chalk and rock outcropping that jutted out from the mountainside on the west of Masada and gradually descended to the desert floor below. Known as the White Cliff or White Spur, it was still 400-plus feet short of reaching the top of the plateau, but Silva saw an opening, albeit an incredibly tough one. His plan was to build an agar, which is fancy talk for ramp. Siege aggers had been used throughout history to some degree or another, but they were usually avoided due to the amount of resources in men, material, and time that they exacted from armies in the field. The planned agger would have a base measuring a whopping 700 feet wide and rise another 300 feet to allow the Roman army to finally reach the enemy walls. All the timber needed to create this crisscrossing skeleton of the agger had to be imported, but once built, the Romans quickly set to work filling in the gaps with rocks and dirt. Inching upwards day by day, the Romans were constantly under fire from the defenders in the city. To help protect the workers, the Romans would deploy movable defensive walls that had been treated against fire, and then they would set up small ballista and other field artillery pieces to keep the Jewish defenders off the walls. After seven months of slow but steady and painstaking work, the agar was complete, and the Romans had done what must have seemed impossible to the people inside Masada. Once completed, the agar ran 2,024 feet long from the base to the enemy wall and reached the dizzying height of 676 feet at a very steep incline. Silva now could reach the lock. He just needed a key. Impossible. So, so the Romans built a ramp. It was still impossible to get anything very large up such a steep incline. And the whole time they, they were up there, they'd be, be under fire. Impossible. The walls would not fall to a few Romans pounding fists. It was impossible. Silva's plan was simple and at the same time incredibly difficult. At the base of the agar, he had a siege tower built with the intention of pounding the walls of Masada to dust. But no simple siege tower would work. For Masada, Silva had his men build a massive, 98-foot-tall, multi-tiered tower. And again, the lumber for this thing had to be imported from afar, further complicating the whole process. One of the major weaknesses of a piece of equipment like this is that it's entirely made of wood, and in the dry, arid desert, fire from enemy missiles could put a quick end to the whole experiment. So Silva had the tower completely paneled in iron plates. Now this would both work as a fire retardant and give even more protection to the men inside the tower, and they would need it, as their job was to lay down a constant covering fire for the people moving the tower. Each floor of the tower had a number of bolt and rock throwers, either ballistas or chariot and these would be used to fire down onto the walls, keeping them clear of defenders. Now all that covering fire allowed the tower to inch its way up the agar, eventually reaching the wall, and then Silva's hidden key was deployed. 
Inside the closed bottom section of the tower was a massive log suspended along a number of lines and possibly capped in metal for even more power. This monstrous tool would be manipulated by a small host of slaves or soldiers pulling the log back and then ramming it into the wall over and over and over. This would eventually crack the Jewish defenses and bring the revolt to an end. The constant pounding and slamming of the ram into the wall eventually did its job, and the exterior wall of Masada began to collapse. The defenders, however, had not been idle, and had been busy preparing for just such an instance. Working to the tune of the whoosh thud of the Roman ram, the trapped Sicarii had used rocks, rubble, dirt, parts of buildings, and any other material at hand to create an interior wall behind the spot that had been breached by the Romans. This created a serious problem for the Romans because the second wall was actually becoming stronger and more solid with each compacting hit from the ram. And it was also harder to use the tower to lay down covering fire at that distance. Silva feared that the only way to take the second wall would be a costly assault, but before that, he wanted to try one more thing. Noticing the amount of timber in the second wall, Silva ordered, Silva ordered the wall to be set on fire, hoping that fire would have the same effect as the ram, and ideally maybe even work a little faster. The fire was built into a huge blaze, and for the Romans in the towers, there was a moment of terror as the wind started moving west, blowing the massive conflagration back onto the tower itself. Still full of Roman soldiers, this would have been a horrible tragedy for the Romans. Eventually, however, the winds righted themselves, and the second wall did in fact collapse as Silva had planned. Finally, he must have thought, he had achieved his goal, and he and his men could ravage the city, put all the men to the sword, make a killing on the women and children in the slave markets, and then get the hell out of the damp desert. Possible. It was simply impossible that such a, a small group of warriors had held out so long. These Jewish zealots must have armed the women, the old, even the young. Impossible. How, how could a group that fought so fiercely for life have decided to end life before the fight was even over? How could these men have killed their wives, their sons, their daughters, and then themselves. Impossible. When the Romans entered the city the next morning, they found a massacre, but not the kind that they would have been used to. It was well known that the Sicarii men, when trapped and in a no-win situation, would kill each other rather than living under Roman rule or being taken alive and sent into slavery or even worse, used as a prop in some Roman triumph. According to the zealot-turned-Roman historian Josephus, the best chronicler of the siege, the Jewish leader Eliezer Ben-Yar had gathered the battered survivors, convincing them that their righteous path was death. He said, quote, 
Since we long ago, my generous friends, resolved never to be servants to the Romans, nor to any other man than to God himself, the time is now come that obliges us to die bravely and in a state of freedom. End quote. In the Jewish faith, suicide is a serious affront to God, so to circumvent the effects of such an act, Benyar and his men killed their own families first. Then they drew lots to decide which man would kill the other, and so on, until there was one man left. His job was then to fall on his own sword. Now, I have often wondered about this poor guy a lot, because A, how creepy and quiet must it have been when he was alone and about to kill himself, and B, it's a pretty shitty thing that his soul was damned simply because he pulled the short straw. As the Romans moved through the city that day, they found over 900 bodies, all suicides, like an ancient precursor to Jonestown. In the city, there were only seven survivors that could be found, two women and five children, who had hidden in one of the large cisterns as the horrible final act had played out. Masada had been conquered, the Sicarii defeated or dead, the Jewish revolt ended, and Rome had once again redefined the word impossible. Rome, in some form or another, would last another 1,300 years. And at Masada, though not an incredibly large or important battle, they had shown their incredible ability to adapt to circumstances. In a time where civilizations tended to be brittle, Rome was fluid and capable of change and improvisation like no other ancient society. The Roman military is probably the best example of this, as at Masada we see an ingenious uh, series of uses of the land and technology, as well as highly sophisticated logistics to solve otherwise impossible problems. It wasn't just the building materials that needed to be brought in for the armies of Silva, but a constant supply of food and fresh water had to be found and then brought to the legionaries at the front. And it was done regularly, like in no other ancient army. We all know Roman armies as being the best in the field in their day, but Masada proves that even besieging, they were leagues ahead of their contemporaries. The science, tech, logistics, and engineering needed to take the city was far beyond anyone else uh, at the time and is the high watermark of Roman siege warfare. As for the Jewish population in Judea after the revolt, there was an exhausted submission to Rome, brought on by severe reprisals. Entire clans were sought out by the Romans and murdered in vast reprisal killings, which led to the exile of thousands of Jews who fled to survive. The lasting effect of the first Jewish revolt and the fall of Masada was the displacement of thousands and thousands of Jews that would for generations hope to return to their home in Judea. In all, it's speculated that the Romans killed more than a million Jews in the first century A.D. and dispersed possibly a million more throughout the Mediterranean, either as slaves or as refugees. 
Now, this is the true beginning of the Jewish diaspora, as thousands were forced to choose to leave after each failed war or revolt. The legend of the stand at Masada would grow through the ages and become a rallying point for thousands that dreamed of a return home. In fact, Masada was a cornerstone of the Zionist movement to retake the historic homeland and found an independent state. The reverence for the warriors of Masada ran so deep that up until recent years, Israeli army units would take an oath in the ruins of the city, crying out, Masada will not fall again. I also want to mention the fact that Masada is an incredibly important site even to this day. You can visit it, and because of the dry environment and the fact that most of the Roman and Jewish structures in the area were forced to be built out of stone, there's an incredible wealth of archaeological information that has been gained from the site. Excavations have shown historians and archaeologists detailed information about Roman camps and siege techniques, as well as given us detailed information about the Jewish walls and fortifications. Clothing, coins, written records, and even Roman ammunition has been found in and around the various dig sites. But perhaps the greatest historic record of Roman power is the remnants of the agar at Masada. Some of the original timbers, timbers used to construct the agar are even in place. The agar is clearly visible today, and it's as if the Romans contoured the very earth to their needs, which they in fact did. It reminds me of Caesar's massive bridge over the River Rhine. Whereas Caesar famously had his bridge destroyed to show the ancient world what the Romans could do, it's as if Silva left his agar to Masada to show the world what Rome did do. Thanks for listening, and I hope you enjoyed the new format. Hopefully in the future, we're going to do a little bit more of a story and try and put you in the shoes of the people in the events. Um, next week will be a special episode where Dr. Greg Jackson and I discuss the Battle of Saratoga, so look out for that on Saturday. Also, check out his podcast. It's awesome. It's well-written. They have sound effects. The guy writes a hell of a story. He knows how to tell history the way it should be. The name of that podcast is History That Doesn't Suck. I believe right now he is going over the War of 1812. So check that out. Again, that's the podcast History That Doesn't Suck. Um, Saturdays are the new drop day, so keep your eyes peeled. I'm slowly getting this down to where I think six days is enough to spit out an episode. 
So Saturday or Sunday, one of those two, uh, depending on how I can get it uh, edited. So vote on Instagram for the battle that we will be covering in the first week of October. And after that, we are hitting the Battle of Arsouf with special guest Angelo. Uh, He's a bit of a fanatic for armor and arms, and he's going to give us a breakdown of Crusader equipment. Um, So stay tuned for that. And uh, uh, thank you for listening. I hope you have a good week.